You're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM KVCU Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM Translator K255 DA Boulder. Welcome to News Underground. My name is Lucy. I'm going to be your host for tonight. We've got an exciting show with one of the guests for the Conference on World Affairs, which the school is hosting this week. Uh, It is the 70th anniversary of the conference. Um, It was originally part of uh, United Nations Week, I believe is what they called it. Uh, And now it's kind of grown into so much more. Um, So I have Heather Hurlbert with me. She is the director uh, of New Models of Policy Change at New America. Heather, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit about your background? Um, you've been in national security for a long time. Um, and, I mean, we'll get into the details of being a woman in national s- security. Um, but just what what all have you done? Sure. Well, I finished college 29 years ago without really having a good idea of what I wanted to do when I grew up um, and had a bunch of internships, some of which I loved, some of which I hated, uh, wound up working as a congressional staffer, then on a delegation overseas just as the as the Berlin Wall fell down. This is a commercial to study foreign languages because I was I was the only person on the delegation who knew Russian and wasn't a CIA agent. So anytime um, we wanted to reach out to that part of the world and signal that we weren't trying to spy on them, they had to take 21-year-old me. So um, I got to do a lot of amazing traveling around um, Eastern Europe at the beginning of my career. Um, Really wanted to work in politics and um, went to work in the Clinton administration, first at the State Department as a speechwriter, and then at the White House. I uh, wrote speeches for Madeleine Albright when she became the first female Secretary of State and then went on to write speeches for President Clinton. Um, Spent some time in the nonprofit world after that, uh, ran a nonprofit that um, worked on teaching progressives how not to be afraid to talk about national security policy, uh, and now um, enjoy running a project at somebody else's larger think tank. That's that's pretty extensive. Uh, it's been it's been a while for you in politics, um, and let, let's just jump right in. So you've done a couple panels this week about being a woman in politics and about the influence of women in politics. Um, from a personal standpoint, how have you have you experienced being a woman in national security? You mentioned yesterday in the panel about women in the age of politics that. Um, when people think of national security, they often think of a man or a masculine figure. How is that kind of contrasted with your experience? Well, we're living in this amazing moment where in so many respects, the public is now equally welcoming to women as leaders as to men. But um, that is not true. That is not true of all people, and it's not true in all policy areas. And if you if you look at the data, people see men as better leaders for some things, and women as better leaders for others. Uh, and you really see a difference that comes out on national security. You also see, in sort of in terms of unconscious bias, just catastrophically bad numbers. Who does the media turn to for analysis when something security related happens? I mean, for example, as as you and I are talking, I think we're all expecting the Trump administration to to launch a strike on Syria in the next um, hours or days. And uh, you can play along at home when that happens and watch your TV and watch your radio and, and just sort of count by gender who gets called in, um, who's seen as an authority figure. And 
you know, we seem, um, even as we make progress in, in other areas, to sort of have that as a, as a residual bias. And so when I was an undergrad and I decided to study international relations, there were no female role models. Um, there just there just wasn't anybody that I was aware of um, at that time. And, you know, things have gotten steadily better since then. But, you know, as recently as maybe three or four years ago, I was doing an interview and the journalist said to me, well, they gave you to me to do the interview, but what could you know about national security? Because you're a woman. And I was like, oh, um, I've only worked in the field for 25 years. How long have you worked in the field? Wow. That's a... As a journalist myself, I would have a lot of feelings about a situation like that, and I can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine being there. And so, let's talk a little bit about your experience. You were the first woman speechwriter for Madeleine Albright, who was the first woman Secretary of State, and this is in a very weird time for for the U.S. What what was going on then that you kind of were on the ground seeing right at that moment? Well, my first memory about that actually was um, the first um, meeting I had with her. Um, and she, you know, the amazing thing about her, by the way, she's got a new book out about fascism. She's 80. Um, and uh, so this was 20 years ago, so she was 60. And there was this interesting question of, um, and if you, if you think, you know, even in the last 20 years, we've had so many more uh, female figures in public life. And so there was this question, how do you how do you present her sort of how feminine a, a public image should she have? And um, so one of the first meetings I had with her, she was having a photo shoot and an article in Vogue. And I mean, you know, I, I grew I was a foreign policy geek. Um, I never thought my professional life was going to involve working with Vogue. Um, I don't think she thought that either. And um, so um, she said to me, well, Heather, I need you to write some stuff for me about what it's like to be the first female secretary of state. And she said, you know, like makeup and stuff. She said, you can do that, right? And I said, oh, yeah, yes, I can do that. And we walked out of the room and my male boss, the chief speechwriter, turned to me and was like, what is she talking about? And I just started laughing because I was like, ooh, you think she and I speak a secret language, don't you? So... But at the same time, those kinds of things were happening. You know, the U.S. was going to war in the Balkans. And she was viewed, um, at the one hand, as this kind of grandmotherly figure. And on the other hand, she was viewed as this very hawkish figure that, in the perception of some people, took us to war in the Balkans. And of course, neither was true. She was a person with strong feelings on some issues like any other cabinet member. But she really blazed a trail by both being um, very, very confident in and assertive about her views, and also being totally unapologetic that she was female, she never pretended to be anything else. Um, just another anecdote, um, she really liked to go shopping. And she has three daughters, and we used to joke that when we traveled with her, she must have like furnished her three daughters' houses several times over. But you know, she wasn't embarrassed about that. She didn't think anybody would think she wasn't serious or that you could take away from her professional credentials. And that level of confidence really served her well both as a as a groundbreaker as a woman but also just as a as a professional in a very weird period where the cold war was over but suddenly there were all these new conflicts and what was america's place in the world and how did we explain that to the to the american people yeah and you bring up a few things there one is the idea of women in power trying to balance uh being women in their identity whether they're feminine or not and also not letting the the woman aspect of their identity get in the way of their work um and i mean even in 2018 we see that today um you see 
uh, on various governments and various levels, a lot of it is still men very often, and there are more women coming into the into the sphere. Um, but do you think that that kind of clash of the woman identity with being a leader, but also not trying to reject being a woman, how does how do you think that plays out on the political field nowadays? Well, I think. Um there are so, I'm, I don't think in every area young women have it easier, but I'm constantly um, impressed by how the culture has changed and many more young women are very confident in your identity, whatever it is, than I feel like my peers and I were at your age. Um, so I do think we are seeing maybe not so much on the national scene, but um, the women who are coming up right now in politics and the women who are... Um, who've been sort of on the front lines of social movements in this country for a number of years and who, frankly, the media is now paying attention to after the 2016 elections, the women who are running for office, those women you really see um, sort of inhabiting their own and sort of not feeling like I can only be a woman politician in this mold or that mold. Um, and so that, you know, I'm not hopeful that gen that generational change will fix everything, but that is one where I think um, generational change is is really helping us a lot. For for women at the national level, I think we still have a, a huge problem, um, and I don't think it was an accident that Albright became Secretary of State when she was 60, at an age where we start to regard women as grandmotherly, and they are no longer we no longer see them as sexually threatening or sexually whatever else, which of course by the way, is also kind of not entirely true, but um, people want to go on thinking that, that's okay. We can we can save that for, for another time. But so we're really, I think, as a society, still working on the idea of women who are in the prime of their, of their lives as also being sort of fully, um, fully, fully leader agents. And I think, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi is very possibly the greatest legislative politician this country has ever seen. And you can like her, you cannot like her, you can think she's too liberal, you can think she's not liberal enough, but she held together her party when she was in the majority and when she's in the minority. And if you look at the record of the men who have succeeded her as speaker and who have had much less success in passing legislation and getting things done, and then you have to ask yourself why, again, why are we just blind why is she not sort of mentioned in every other breath as sort of possibly the greatest retail politician of, of her of her generation? Yeah, I did read a very interesting kind of profile feature about her recently, as there's been talk within the party of maybe um, removing her with the next set of elections. Um, but there was definitely a consensus that she gets things done. And... Um, but I mean, that's been happening on the conservative side and the liberal side. You talked a lot, um, the panel that yesterday you talked in mentioned as well how even even conservative women as well as liberal women are mobilizing more in politics nowadays. But how do they talk about these things that have been, have been traditionally masculine, like national security? Yeah, so I... Um I will now repeat an anecdote that you heard me tell in the panel. Um, I used to advise um, folks running for Congress, and it's always a, it's a particular challenge both because we, we're looking, we're sort of trained to look for masculine reassurance on security issues, 
and we are trained to think that the only kind of knowledge that's that's valued on security issues is oh i served in the military and you know the truth about the military is that there are many many brilliant and ethical and very talented people but there are also there are mediocre people in the military just like every other part of life and there are mediocre men and there are mediocre women um so you would run into these women candidates who would say well i can't say anything about security because i don't have any experience and um the sort of the way i would handle it was to say well where were you on 9 11 what were you worried about were you worried about your family then you're actually tapping into an experience that's more in common with most of your voters than someone who says, oh, you know, I was getting ready to be deployed to Afghanistan. I mean, most of us were not deployed to Afghanistan right after 9-11, but almost all of us had somebody we were worried about or something we thought about. And so as a woman, what, or as anybody, this advice is also good for male civilians, by the way, um, what you want to tap into is what is what is your experience around security that you have in common with with the voters? And, you know, once you go to that frame, because so many of us as women are socialized to think about other people's feelings and other people's needs, then you're actually kind of likely to do better if you can, um, and this is the same thing that I was always amazed there weren't more women speechwriters because I felt like so much of my training as a girl growing up that I was very well positioned to sort of, nobody cares what Heather Hurlbert thinks about this development, but everybody cares, you know, what would Madeleine Albright think about it? So you gotta get into her head and think her way. And running for office, that's how you, that's how you get around the problem of, oh, how is this voter gonna see me as trustworthy on security? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting anecdote. It definitely goes back to the idea of tapping into emotion because at the end of the day, we all just wanna feel secure and like regardless of what party you are in or how you identify that that's always a something in the mind especially nowadays with all of the conversations around national and international security local security whatnot um and in this panel you also mentioned there was a, some talk about how white women often act like white men when voting where in partisanship background and the race of a woman can uh, overtake their gender. So people were hoping that women would kind of vote um, vote with their gender in the 2016 election. Uh, and white women did not really do that. Women of color overwhelmingly did so. Um, but for white women, not so much. And then we have Boulder. And Boulder is very uh, a very unique kind of political situation um and they're i mean it's mostly white in general um and so how does how does boulder as a as a political situation especially with things like security kind of contrast with this national this national conversation and a national picture of what's going on well I live in um, something of an East Coast version of Boulder uh, called Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is a, a also a very liberal enclave. Um, and um, the thing that I think uh, is sometimes an unpleasant surprise to progressives 
is that we actually aren't as different from everybody else as we think we are. And um, there is plenty of sexism and plenty of uh, sort of institutional or systemic discrimination in um, progressive institutions and progressive bodies. And we also find um, some of the same unconscious bias. And we find, interestingly enough, for example, the, um, the anti-war movement, the peace movement um, for years has struggled, struggles with some of the same issues of sexism and even, frankly, harassment and violence against women. And so um, in a place like Boulder or Tacoma Park or anywhere else, it, it is true that um, women vote more on ideology than on gender. And I think a great example of that might be that I, I suspect, I don't have figures in front of me, but a, I would guess that a place like Boulder had, and I think I remember hearing stories about this when I was here last year, um, higher, uh, higher support for Bernie Sanders than um, maybe other Democrats, um, other Democratic enclaves across the nation as a whole. Um, and so that, you know, is clearly a place where and, and women, plenty of women Sanders supporters would tell you very emphatically that they were voting based on their ideology. And maybe they were even voting on what they thought would actually be best for women. So I actually think um, sort of liberal enclaves are not as different as maybe we like to think we are. Yeah, I think that's that's quite a good point. Um, it definitely depends kind of on these waves. Uh, and again, like there's this interesting visualization of past presidents um of who have all been men of course but even the the differences in their ideologies and thoughts are really it's a it's a visualization kind of on this political spectrum they're really not that far away from each other they're mostly all within the same quadrant oddly enough just a little bit to the left or right um and so that kind of goes back to a larger conversation that is happening about politics um, of people kind of having a uh, coming to Jesus meeting of, well, why are we having this situation right now? And it's definitely a public conversation. Um, how do you think this is affecting like administrations, especially with national security, but also international involvement administrations? Um, how does this affect new america's functioning this idea of like well what do we do now yeah one of the sort of enormous challenges that we have as a society is that our our ability to imagine and to hear about ways of being in the world um is actually ironically shrinking even as we're all as individuals and communities getting more and more connected um, and in the years since 9-11 in particular, so much of the news about what we do in the, in the world is dominated by um, coverage of the military, which on the one hand is understandable because it's American lives at risk, but what that crowds out is all kinds of stories and all kinds of options about um, other ways that the U.S. is involved in the world, other ways that people in the world are changing their own lives without help from the U.S. military, or other ways that Americans and people in other places are working together. Um, and by the way, this also means that stories of women are crowded out. And so we here at home just aren't exposed to the, I mean, really amazing ways that, that women's leadership and um, social, social movement leadership is transforming the world in other places. And then 
people don't know because you don't get exposed to it. And so then you can't blame people for not voting for and not asking for things that they don't know and don't hear anything about. So so we really are um, we're we're losing our imagination about um, the realm of things that it's possible to do that's possible to do in the world and ways that it's possible for our country and our citizens to be positively engaged. Right, right. And a lot of what we've been talking about has kind of assumed um, that these women are cisgender, but there has been, there's been some uh, trend of increase in trans politicians and LGBTQ politicians, especially in the 2016 and 2017 elections. Um, across the country more trans folk are going into office as well which is worth noting um it's not really something that we've been talking about much uh because it's it is a much larger feat for them uh because it's the next a next level of yeah, I really want to jump in and say two things about that, one of which is that there is an amazing new state legislator, um, actually not that far from me, in Northern Virginia, um, Danica Broom, who's a former journalist and um, has just, I think, she's an incredibly smart politician, and she is a blazing and amazing trail, and her, her Twitter feed is one of my favorite things, as I just watch her being an incredibly effective politician um, of any gender. Um, and the other thing that's playing out right now, actually where kind of all of these, these struggles that we've been talking about come together, is the status of transgender folks in the military, where um, the Obama administration moved very slowly, but did at the end, um, of its tenure decide to allow um, transgender folks to serve in their preferred gender, um, a policy which was to have taken effect this past July. The president tried to block this policy by tweet, which then left us in this kind of awkward situation. Does a tweet count as an official order from the commander in chief? Um, there were a number of lawsuits to block the policy. The administration then sort of convened a study group. There have been allegations that the study group was compromised by um, conservatives from outside government coming in. Um, and also it uh, cherry-picked the science so much that the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association have, have spoken out against it. So, you know, there are there are folks serving in their in their lived gender right now in amazing ways and and yet there are these lawsuits and they're they're getting up and going out and risking their lives every day sort of waiting to hear whether they'll be allowed to continue to serve and in in many ways they um although that that struggle gets less attention and it's one that many people are still not really comfortable with but that is the most cutting edge of all the same phenomena we're talking about that where security means security means men and man means one thing right right i mean there are a lot of assumptions made in certain conversations that in 2018 we're starting to kind of break those down more um and that is definitely something i think the younger generation is doing a bit more effectively than the older generation um but yeah, no, I mean, the transgender military policies are still very much up in the air. And it's, I mean, we're still sending troops overseas to various places for various reasons. Um, and people enlist every day that don't know if they're actually allowed to or not, but they want, they want to serve the country. And so this kind of brings us to something that we talked about before we came on air about 
the changes in global politics and in globalization. There's been rises in authoritarian regimes, in nationalism, uh, and that might not seem super relevant to Boulder specifically, but it is in the sense of um, Boulder often kind of wants to uh, maintain what's been going on. You saw in our 2017 elections, um, well, in 2017 and 2016, there were um, parties that were kind of, or rather groups that were advocating for the maintenance of Boulder kind of as how it is um, and not much growth or expansion or change. Um, and that's pretty endemic of a lot of places around the world. Um, from a national security standpoint, where do you see us going in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, the thing that you're seeing, and it plays out, as you note, differently in different places, but it does come from, I mean, many human beings are uncomfortable with change. The pace of change feels very fast. The level of thing that is unfamiliar or not what you chose has just created enormous backlashes of different kinds all over the world. And I think um, we actually make a huge mistake by walling off how we think about national security from how we think about community security. And I would note that actually um, conservative and populist movements in the US and elsewhere, they don't, they don't see that, they don't make that distinction. Um, and that can produce some outcomes that are really deeply problematic from my point of view. But it does mean that others of us have to, to get used to the idea that um, the ability of a person in Boulder to feel secure about what his or her future looks like is not ultimately different or separable or you, if you try to understand that as something totally different from how are we understanding the future security of Syria, um, you're going to end up failing on both counts because you and I as consumers of news, we're not distinguishing and our brains don't have, don't have that many neural pathways. So I think the key challenge for all of us, which is a security challenge, but it's also a cultural challenge and an economic challenge, is how do we develop ways of, of making ourselves feel secure in a world that, you know, change isn't going to slow down, like how many minutes until the next iPhone? Right, right. And it has arguably felt much faster in the digital age, but even in the 20th century, change could happen in an hour. The, wor the world changed in an hour multiple times in the 20th century. It's changed in an hour in a minute in the 21st. And, and we have before gone through these cycles where we thought we were unalterably globalized and, and that it was impossible to break the connections between nations and then they were broken. And, you know, we did that twice with horrible conflagrations in the 20th century. And, you know, the challenge before us is can we figure out how to go through a period of, of retrenchment, which I think there's no denying that we're in a period of retrenchment. Can we figure out how to go through that without escalating into global conflict not to sound um not to sound apocryphal or um sorry apocalyptic but but that at you know we as as humans we have a history of working in cycles and the good news is in the long run we come out a little better each time but the bad news is we tend we've had trouble figuring out how to do that without without some major conflagrations along the way right right well and we have a lot of uh, heavy things coming ahead of us in the decades. National security and globalization, is that going to break down? What's going to change there? Uh, climate change? Climate change is a big deal, and that is a national security issue. Yeah, and that is one 
it is interesting because, of course, we continue to have a political divide in the United States about whether climate change is a national security issue or not. Um, I think we actually, the good news is we have less of a political divide than it appears that we do, um, in that you have quite a number of conservatives who, um, whether for um, ecological reasons or purely economic reasons, sort of understand that they have backed themselves into into an untenable place. And so I think you'll see um, you'll see improvement in the U.S. on on climate change that we that we've sort of um, you know we've we've backed away and we're going to start moving forward again. But the I mean the pace which was already um, sort of slower than the scientists would would like us to have, and. The other place where I think we're really going to struggle is this question of how do you combine um, response to climate change with climate justice? And that, that, I think, turns out not to be a place where we have where we have any kind of consensus, frankly, in the U.S. And um, I think we're going to see that's going to be a real struggle elsewhere in the world as well. So we may be able to get ourselves back on track, um, sort of pushing forward on the pure the pure science side of climate change, but how how we deal with the human costs of it, I'm I'm less optimistic about. Right, right. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of cities and states kind of diverging from uh, Trump's decision not to be in the Paris Accords. I think Boulder is one of them where they've said, yes, we actually would like to be in Paris. We would like to be part of this because this is important to us. Um, but I guess, like, kind of to close out, you've been someone kind of watching these things for decades, participating in them as well. Um, how can the average person, average citizen of Boulder, but of really anywhere, kind of stay aware? But also, how do you not just get pessimistic about the world? Um, so ways not to get pessimistic. Uh, number one, hang out with young people. Um, number two, I mean, as someone who lives in a great city, but a city that is um, way the heck too far from the mountains, um, you know, enjoy the things you have here that you're fighting to fighting to preserve. And um, really make a conscious effort to get off news sites and and structures of of getting information that that are just purely depressing and repetitive and that you are i mean and we all do this i do it too i'm like my hand is already the minute she said close out my hand started reaching for my phone to check my twitter feed um but really in make a point of incorporating into your your news consumption your media consumption some stories um some outlets about places where good things are happening and people who are doing we're doing good stuff so that you're you're varying your diet a little and and just last point um actually get involved in doing something that helps other people because just psychologically that is healthy for us and you will then meet organizations and people who are just doing amazing stuff because every single place in america i don't care your political orientation human beings are doing really great stuff for other human beings and to to do something where you're you're going out of your way to expose yourself to the better side of human nature um when the media is constantly exposing you to the consequences of the worst side of human nature um we all need that it's a very selfish reason to to engage in um charitable or or a social service work but it's actually a really good reason to do it 
yeah, I mean, Boulder has no has no shortage of those opportunities, that's for sure. Heather Holbert is the director of the New Models of Policy Change Project at New America's Political Reform Program. Uh, she's been speaking at the Conference of World Affairs here on CU's campus. Uh, she writes for New York Magazine and has published articles in many others and also runs the Dresbert podcast. Thank you so much for being with me, Heather. You are so welcome. I enjoy this place so much. And every year I um, meet and do new cool things like coming on this radio station that just make me more impressed with it. It's been it's been lovely to have you. Uh, a quick update about all of the CUSG news but that's been going on on campus. Um, the chancellor and the presidents were reported to have met sometime Monday uh, to talk a bit more, as the chancellor had promised to have a meeting with them um, before making any action on what he would like to do. Uh, it's still unclear what happened in that meeting, um, and there has not been an official press release. We will update you as we get the information. Um, Radio 1190 is a cost center of CU, which means that we do get some student fees through their budgetary process, uh, but we are editorially independent um, and we're just trying to keep everyone in the loop as uh, the CU student government controls $25 million in student fees and um, they're quite a large uh, entity on, on this campus. So stay tuned for updates on that in the next few days. We're hoping to have more information as it comes. Thank you so much for listening to News Underground today. My name is Lucy. We will be back next Monday with Mark Serez talking about his book, Brave New Arctic. Have a wonderful night.